Hello, and welcome to the Homeland Podcast. Step out to find out it's wet and warm, wet and warm. Tra-la-la, 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 tra-la-la. You know, it's it's easy to fly at 10,000 feet above this issue and look down and go, this isn't permanent housing. This isn't going to work. And then you step into that village and you go over to the house and you find a woman and her four kids living there. And you go, where would you be if you were not here right now? Designers who have watched the homelessness crisis expand during their educational careers seem to have a heightened sense of the design community's opportunity to creatively engage the issue of homelessness. During this episode, I speak with two young designers, Baron Pepper and Giselle Major, who are trained as an architect and a landscape architect, respectively. While working together at the multidisciplinary design firm Methune, they helped the Low Income Housing Institute, or Lehigh, develop a tiny house village in Seattle's Georgetown neighborhood. Baron's story is particularly interesting for longtime listeners to the podcast because his first engagement with homelessness was with the Community First Village in Austin, Texas, that I discussed with Alan Graham in episode 25, and he now works with Rex Holbein and Jennifer Lafreniere at the Block Project, which we discussed in episode 3. On the homelandlab.com website, we've included a selection of site plans and images from the project Baron and Giselle discuss. To start the conversation today, I asked Giselle and Baron, what is a tiny house village? So a tiny house village um, across the country can, can vary in its, in its definition and how it plays out and who manages it or if it's managed. But um, at its basic level, a tiny house village is a small gathering of small structures that, um, that we would step into and consider a home that um, it provides either temporary or more permanent housing for people who've been chronically homeless. So how did you guys get involved? It sort of started with some conversations with Lehigh, which is the Low Income Housing Institute here in Seattle, and they were um, at the beginning of starting planning for a new tiny house village on city-sanctioned property, and they'd always sort of done the process of we have houses and we drop them in the space. And this was a chance to, from the outset, start thinking about where you could drop them and why and how that would make a better Mm -hmm. result for the people living there and from a management and visibility perspective and also from a neighborhood concern perspective. Mm -hmm. So talk talk a little bit more about kind of the site. Like what, what, what does a site look like if I... If I was coming there at the start of this design process, what would I see? What's surrounding it? What are the adjacencies? What's the transportation network? Like just a yeah. little bit about what this piece of land looks like. Yeah. So, uh, again, they vary greatly, but some of the requirements, and, and they, they do have these bulleted out that, that are specific, but some of the requirements is access to public transportation. Mm-hmm. So that would be a requirement in any city-sanctioned tiny house village here in Seattle. Um there's also, um, I think, sensitivity to neighbors, which doesn't preclude um, any type of use, but there's a bit of, I think, fielding out how people feel. Um, so, yeah, with, with Georgetown Village, which is the site that we were looking at, um, it's city-owned property, 
It's down by Boeing Field. Um, so it's just adjacent to some of the hangars that Boeing owns, and there's airplanes flying overhead, and it's uh, right next to a fire station. But it was a huge piece of property that had um, some rocks and rubble and a little overgrown. All, all of the perimeter had a chain-link fence with uh, you know, blackberries and uh, different things growing on it. So we went there, and it just felt like a huge vacant lot. Mm-hmm. Um, and to what Giselle was saying, um, I had I had visited um, the Othello Village, which is one of um, one of the earlier tiny house villages in Seattle. And upon visiting it, I walked around and I spoke. I was I was doing a, um, a design for a house for Southwest Revolution at the time, and so we were there doing basically a, um, a context analysis where how do these houses fit into the village and how will it be used and how close are they to other houses. So we were there just doing some research and um, was kind of struck by um, some of the some of the different um, arrangements of houses or, or um, spatial concerns that seemed to haven't been fully flushed out. Um, which just led to asking some questions. You know, we, we walked out of there and said, well, so who's who's figuring out how these houses drop down next to each other? And who's who's deciding whether the smoking tent and the children's play area, like how close are those to each other? Um, which just turned out to be a question to Lehigh. He said, hey, who's planning the next tiny house village? I, at that point, we didn't even know when there was one coming, but, um, but one was on the horizon. And so, and they said, no one is. And so... Giselle, myself, and another colleague, Heidi, we all stepped in kind of from a couple different viewpoints. Heidi's both architect and um, versed in urban design, and Giselle was bringing the landscape expertise, and I felt like I was bringing some amateur architecture thinking, and uh, together we thought we could really bring kind of a holistic um, siting and spatial arrangement of these different houses together. And so how many houses was Lehigh, who's the client, were they thinking that this property had the capacity to hold? In the beginning, it was a big conversation, actually. Um, that's something that we were that we also were bringing some, um, some expertise and some thinking to about the importance of um, thinking about how many people, especially in this demographic, can be in one place at a time. And if it's the right thing to do to maximize the lot, mm-hmm. it was a really large yacht, uh, yacht, uh, <laughs> it, was, it was a really big lot. And I think you probably could have fit, you know, 40 to 50 houses there. Um, if, if you lined them up with minimum separation, like, like military barracks, um, which, which I think we all felt strongly upon laying it out. We said, this is not, this is not what can happen here. Um, and there's qualities of urban planning and of building planning of how do you bring people closer together? How do you give people proper amounts of agency over their space and then opportunities to step into a space that feels shared so that people can comfortably start to engage? We, we thought those principles are, are almost more important in these villages than, than you would find in a, in a typical project. Um, so we approached it with how can we break up what is a huge site into what might feel like smaller clusters or neighborhoods um, surrounding, you know, a, an open space where people can feel like instead of interacting with 30 houses where like my, my little area is actually just interacting with these five houses. Mm. I think there are some things about this site that lend itself to this sort of experimentation and 
playing with different layouts just because it was bigger than any of the other sites. And um, after some clearing, and even if you look at the before and after photos of the site, it's gone through quite a transition. Um, but it's relatively flat, and there's just all of these things that lend itself to trying out different layouts and um, planning strategies. Mm-hmm. And so I would back up to say the site is not the site that you would dream of if you were like, where can we put a tiny house village? Um, it's a little bit far from the center core, uh, the core of the city. It's a little bit, there is public transit, of course, but it, how reliable and consistent is it that far away? How close is it to jobs? Those are all things that are to be considered. And it's also close to a Boeing facility, which is a different sort of neighbor to consider. Mm-hmm. And it's right off of the Duwamish, which has had its own sort of environmental concerns. So there are those things. But it's also a site that, as Baron mentioned, is right next to a fire department, which is great when you start thinking about eyes on a place and infrastructure that's existing. Um, it also allowed us to, and when I say experiment, I don't mean test things out on people and hope that they work. I think it's a way to challenge what had always been done and what the model was in a way that would actually help the residents that live there and give them a little bit more authority and agency and how they were thinking about their space um, and at once building a community and having people be together but giving them some individuality and some room to breathe and stretching the margins a little bit in ways that they wouldn't have had in a tent city mm-hmm. or in one of the earlier um, sort of iterations of the village so mm-hmm. this one was a test case in a way of like how do we apply these different strategies um to help everybody that lives here and get the management company in the city to think a little bit more broadly and a little bit more innovatively about how they were putting a lot of people in mm-hmm. one space. Yeah. And this site really supported that, I think. You've mentioned kind of some of the other things that come along with these housing units. What, what was the overall program for the site? Yeah, that's a great question. So um, the way that the... Um, I guess some of the, the main program requirement was providing the housing, but with that comes all these other supplemental requirements. Uh, toilet facilities, for instance. There is going to be porta potties. They wanted to have shower facilities. Um, there needs to be a kitchen tent that people can store food and other neighbors can bring donations that those things are stored in a tent. Um, and and I should also preface all this with the, all, all these city-sanctioned villages are managed by Nicholsville. And so while we were also considering how many houses we felt like could, could, could be supported on this site, Nicholsville was providing input on how many houses and people they felt like they could um, have a functioning community that was self-managed, which is, which is what they really helped provide um, some, some guidance for. So the programs of kitchen tent, a, sleep, a place for temporary uh, sleeping when someone is transitioning into the village. If mm. somebody comes and they don't yet have a house available or if someone plans on leaving soon, they have a really large tent with cots where people can stay basically as they're transitioning into the village in a more in a more permanent way. And the program I think forces or forced us to flex our design muscles a little bit because just looking at it on paper, you're like, why do you need a design team? answer these really basic program questions there's some realities of the site like they need to pick up trash and 
this is sort of where it needs to be and you're hooking up water from this particular pump and so that's where that needs to be and if you just sort of plug and play in that way it doesn't actually make a village that people would want to live in or that fosters community and that's where we sort of came in to say these are some very real constraints but what if we use a little bit of imagination to force the program to fit a vision for the people that are living there and not mm-hmm. just the strict dictations of the site. Mm-hmm. And and what might seem like a very basic thing to consider, like how do you service a porta potty? If un, if if it goes unconsidered and then last minute you gotta put the porta potty where it's accessible and that happens to be also the entrance. End of the world? No, the function the, the village is still gonna function just fine. Would you want to walk into your home past a porta potty every single day and and know that somebody decided for that to be there? Like it, there's a there's a dignity component that comes into all of these decisions where we said those should not be by the entrance. Those should be serviced at the other gate, which means that like as basic as that is, those are some constraints that we need to continue to work within. Such a kind of basic level of design, but mm-hmm. really important decisions. I talk talk a little bit about that design process, and you've already mentioned Lehigh, who is the operator or the nonprofit kind of bringing the houses. Nicholsville, who is another nonprofit, bringing the operation and mm-hmm. support. Then there's the residents, well, and the residents of the neighborhood surrounding this site, and the future residents who will be living on the site. What was that design process like, and how did that those conversations iterate and go? Mm-hmm. So, so for the design process, Lehigh was our client, um, and I think they're considered the fiscal sponsor. Um, so Lehigh is the Low Income Housing Institute. They're a developer who provides affordable housing. Um, they also have been very forward-thinking. Uh, the Othello Village that I mentioned earlier is a property that they owned, that they hadn't yet developed, and so they decided to have a tiny house village temporarily housed there. Um, so they're very forward-thinking, and they provided the fiscal sponsorship, which I think also looks a lot like project management. Um, Nicholsville is the nonprofit that is made up of homeless and formerly homeless individuals, and they're kind of boots on the ground. They are bringing the structure that makes this place feel like a community, gives people jobs, uh, there's a security booth that you have to check in anytime you come and go, and the people manning or womaning that booth are people who live in the village. So Nicholsville is bringing with it kind of the infrastructure of how can we make this function well, where everybody has a job and a responsibility and feels like their input here matters a lot. Um, so we we were presented to them kind of secondary to presenting to Lehigh, and Lehigh um, they've got designers and architects as part of their team, so. Essentially, I mean, it, it was kind of a, a typical design process that the three of us, Heidi, Giselle, and I sat down and just did some sketching and said, all right, how many houses fit here comfortably? How many houses maximizes the site? Um, how can we group these houses in a, in a different ways in order to achieve uh, kind of different, different smaller communities? So we did a bunch of sketching and then, you know, presentations to Lehigh. They'd provide some feedback and uh, what was really exciting was Pretty quickly, they they were really into the idea of, of uh, the theme that we went with, which was cluster housing, mm-hmm. of taking on an enormous site and grouping houses together to create these smaller little communities. Um, they, they were fully on board with that, but of course they wanted to achieve a certain number of houses, um, so it was a little bit of, you know, uh, updating the drawing, sending it back, and then 
things like the what, what turned out to be called the kingdom, which was um, a large tent, um, a large tent that was um, the space for temporary transitioning into the village. Um, we didn't know what size that was going to be. You know, things like that, like is as simple as it was. Like th- these are simple, you know, foot building footprints on a plan that we're shifting around. But there was we we wanted the shower facilities the kitchen, the community gathering space to all be tucked on one side of the site. And if that tent grew 10 feet, we might not be able to do that. So while we were in this design process, they were saying three houses less, no, five houses more. And the kingdom, we don't really know what that size that is yet. So hold some space for it. So there's a little bit of a, you know, a hurry, hurry up and wait kind of um, movement. But once we got all those parts together, um, we, you know, presented the design to everyone who was going to be involved, which was Lehigh, Nicholsville, and then a pretty extensive group of just community volunteers, plumbers, electricians, people who just wanted to be part of something beautiful. Um, so we came and kind of presented it to all of them, and yeah, that was kind of where it landed. In, in your documentation, you have these three themes in your precedent imagery, which is the idea of screening, identity and play. Can you talk about why those three were important? Sure. So, as Brian was saying, in a lot of ways, we approach this as a traditional design exercise, but in others, it there was sort of a way that you had to stretch. And that I say that because, one, there aren't really neighbors in an immediate context to sort of pull design inspiration from. Also, who's going to be living there when you're dealing with issue like homelessness you don't know how many people or what kinds of people and what their makeup is going to be like Um, but there are some very real things that you could sort of put into play like screening is something that is always going to be tied to people experiencing homelessness like how do you approach security how do you approach defining a neighborhood how do you make some sort of ownership over a space so that felt like a good sort of tool to designed to and also be aspirational about. Um, Play was really important because it's something that's sometimes approached as an extra or additive and we sort of felt like bringing humanity and dignity and all of those things was foundational and play sort of allowed for that and based on some things that Farron had seen in Othello Village where kids were playing next to the smoking tents and where, you know, it's a very real situation that there's lots of families that end up in these encampments and kids are not choosing the path that has led to homelessness and so prioritizing them in some way felt really important and it also was a great leader to um, to community. I think having some fun and like reprieve from the realness mm-hmm. of homelessness was great and so we sort of used these other tools in finding our precedents that could be design strategies that you couldn't just ask a neighbor about or mm-hmm. somebody who was committing. But we had a story, I think, with mm-hmm. our site. That... And, and something, Bryce, that I'm sure your your work in this topic is uh, disclosing or, or uncovering is how... Um, so let's let's talk about that for a second. Kind of where they were coming from, who was building them, what their size was. Uh huh. Yeah. So the buildings um, are provided from a number of of different groups. Um, 
there are there's a um Native American um the Tulalip tribe. Uh they provide um they've been they've gotten in, plugged into some of these different efforts and I think they've done a lot of different community work in the past um surrounding homelessness, but they've plugged in and they've been building and blessing some different houses and they're they're really pretty special. They show up um it's a similar um it's a similar house to some of the other ones in the village, but they've been painted with some of their um more traditional designs uh that I, I think is considered a blessing. It's a it's a wish for you know peace and well being for the person who's living in the house, which is unique to the village. They they do stand out. They're very special. Um, Lehigh also has some kind of stock plans that they can provide to community members and other individuals who want to build a house for someone experiencing homelessness. Um, and those, um, you know, they are gable-roofed, small, little wooden structures that, um, you know, they're reminiscent of a shed that you'd have in your backyard, but it has a front door and it's usually got a little side window. Um, but it's, it's, you know, it doesn't have a porch and um, they're usually painted with really bright poppy colors to bring elements of, of play um, and to kind of, I think, lighten what is a very serious and often gray environment. Um, lots of gravel, lots of asphalt. Um, so those, those are what mostly populate these villages, are the, are the bright popping colors of um, the Lehigh houses. And then sprinkled throughout a much smaller percentage are some of Sawhorse Revolution's houses. Um, the Sawhorse Revolution is a uh, youth carpentry nonprofit here in Seattle. Their their mission is not specifically focused around homelessness. They're focused on serving Seattle youth. But in the last I don't know six years or so, they've really found a beautiful niche, building it, designing and building tiny houses for homelessness um, with partnerships of of builders and architects um, and having students involved in that whole process. It's just such a meaningful project and it's contained enough, it's a small enough scope that it's something they can do in a, in a school semester. They provide houses that have been, uh, that do stand out a lot. They've been usually partnered with some sort of professional architecture group that the students got to participate in, seen a design through, and then they partner with builders and construct it. So. In terms of uh, building form, whether it's shed roofs or something else, um, or sometimes just the different materials you you see, they they do stand out. Sometimes it's corrugated metal. Um, in one case, it's um, Swiss pearl uh, siding, which is just um, it was an extremely generous donation on the part of Swiss pearl. But they're they're the houses that you look at and go, wow, that one's different. What's <laughs> what's the story there? And then there's probably some people who I've forgotten who contributed houses. I think. Lehigh does a really good job of um, letting a lot of different people, different organizations participate. It's kind of like how I was saying earlier, you don't know who's coming to live on the site. You also don't know what houses are going to end up there. Mm -hmm. um, so you could have something that all looks very homogenous or things that you're like, wow, this doesn't go with this one at all, but we're going to make it work. And there's also an interesting education component that has folded in. So by the way, of Sawhorse Revolution, but also I think one of the local technical colleges is building houses there. Mm -hmm. um, there's also a lot of corporations here in the city that they're like, well, we can get volunteers together for one day. What can we do? And it's like, you can build one of these pre-made plans and have that there. And then there's also some quirky little limitations in the fact that we've 
we weren't the first site, so we've seen how the houses get to places, and it's kind of one yeah. of those situations where there's a guy with a truck, yeah. and his limitate like the size limitations of his truck is how big you build the tiny house. Right, that's right. how you transport it across the city and get it in. So there's some of those things that help drive the size and design of the yeah. house. Which that would make what, what this conversation and the breadth of people involved uh, brings me to right now is 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 back to dignity. Um, it's amazing the response that Seattle has to want to get involved and do something. Building buildings is also um, something that is done typically by professionals, um, not just from a perspective of design, but in terms of flashing, waterproofing, vapor barriers, insulation. Like those are things that it's it's kind of our world to know how to use those things properly and, and what the effects are on a house. Um, and, it, and it gets much more serious when, when we're talking about uh, what we're providing to someone who's been previously sleeping in a tent or under a bridge. So back to um, some of those client conversations. Coinciding with this, with this building planning, um, or this, this tiny house village planning, I was working on a design for Southwest Revolution and I remember meeting with Nicholsville, um, some of the individuals there, and was just asking for feedback. You know, what do you, what do you, what have you learned from the tiny houses that have come to these villages, and what what works, what doesn't, etc. And I remember one gentleman telling me, if this house isn't insulated, and if it, if and if and if it, if it's yeah, if it's not insulated, and if it traps moisture, I would rather sleep under a bridge. And I remember, like that, that was like a. Is, is as simple as that is. Um, if you feel wet and cold huddled inside of a house, we are we are doing. It's not only not solving the problem, but there's all this energy that goes into um, what we feel to be a solution and what might, to all eyes, look like a solution. That when you actually ask the person who's staying in that space if it feels damp and cold all night long. And they'd rather be in what it, what would otherwise be a space that is at least has air movement, like beneath a bridge that might also be dry. It's it's really a brain buster to think, oh my gosh, that is a better place to sleep. And that's the thing in this design process that we don't we don't really get to go and experience those differences. But simultaneously, I was working with uh, Pacific Sheet Metal, who was doing some really great work for the, the pro bono work for the house, and even the even the uh, the owner um, named James, even even he said, oh my gosh, you know, I never would have thought that if, if these weren't built with the quality that we would all expect out of a space that you're living within, that people would choose alternatives. So with the amount of people who were involved in building these houses and bringing them, it, it sheds light on how much Seattle wants to participate. I think it also brings back the importance of doing things um, appropriately and doing them really well and professionally the first time because we, we wouldn't want somebody to come and be out of the rain but be shivering all night because there's moisture trapped in this house or that they don't have the insulation that they need. And you're getting at what is what is kind of the essential question around these types of villages and this type of housing solution, which is, are they really a solution to homelessness? And a lot of people would say no because they're not quote-unquote, permanent housing, mm-hmm. having gone through this process and seen it up close and seen the way that it affects people up close, what are your thoughts on the pros and cons? Like, What's, the, what's that calculus personally for you? Yeah, that's a great question. I don't think it's a solution to homelessness, but I think it's a really important 
important step. And so I think a lot of times, whether it's politically or design or all of these things, we don't do um, anything because the task seems really big. And I think it's more important to do something and get started and, and then think. So be thinking and doing at the same time and not just caught in this web of what do we do. And I think the tiny house villages are a great first step in that. And there's some there's visibility to them. Um, I think they make people feel more comfortable in a certain way. Like NIMBYs, here's a house, tiny house that feels different than a tent, and so it starts to open conversations about having people living in their neighborhood in a different way. So while I don't think it's a permanent solution, I think it it is a good place to start. You know, here's a structure that actually has a floor and there's a door to knock on and I think some of those are comforts that are important if you have a family experiencing homelessness I think having a tiny house that you could maintain and feel some ownership over even for a little bit of time is important just mentally um, and I also think just talking to some of the residents they were excited to be there and have the opportunity it's sort of like a stepping stone for them as well. It feels like a milestone that they've reached that they have this house to call their own for a while. And I think they recognize it as temporary as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's also something that challenges, I think, the way that we traditionally think about design and that we know what the problem is and then we're solving it. And homelessness, I think, is a little bit different in that you as a designer don't really get to design the problem or define the problem. You have to ask the people who are living there what the, their problem is and how you could help them fix it. And that's something that I think is important to consider in a tiny house village, that you are not fixing the whole problem of homelessness or the problem as you see it. You are solving a temporary problem for somebody else. And I think that's important to think about too. Yeah, I, you know, I think, I think some of the outcome of, of this involvement was for me was to realize how far I was still from the issue. And it's something that I wrestled with a lot because here I would, I would, I would be spending my free time. Um, and and Methun, where I was working at the time, was also supportive in letting us uh, you know, bill some time as pro bono to the firm. So um, regardless, spending time really trying to get my head into this issue and to do something good for the people who'd be living there and still, I felt so far away from it. And, and still, I'm sitting there sketching on this, and then I walk past someone on the street, and I am uh, like, I don't know what to say, I don't know what to do, I want to, I want to treat you well. But um, for me, it wasn't yet getting at the at the um, kind of personal transformation that I was hoping that the work would would lead me to. Um, and I I I I think the work um, of transitional tiny house villages is super meaningful and I don't think it's a solution um, you know it's it's easy to fly at 10,000 feet above this issue and look down and go this isn't permanent housing this isn't going to work and then you step into that village and you go over to the house and you find a woman and her four kids living there and you go where would you be if you were not here right now and then you feel like this is it's, it's the paradox I mean this is so much of a both and kind of problem it's not an either or um, so any anybody out there who's doing work that matters, that is housing people, like keep doing it. Solutions, I think, kind of fall into a different category, and they're slower and they're systemic, and they require kind of a collective involvement. Um, 
I, I now work for Block Architects, who um, who founded the Block Project, which is a community-based project here in Seattle that um, houses people who are homeless um, in people's backyards. So it's it's individual citizens who are professional or non-professional in whatever whatever it is that they do. They just own a house who care and deeply want to be involved, and they and their neighborhood come to us and say, hey, we, we want to be involved. And we get to basically pair them up with um, individuals and services that allow them to be involved in homelessness in the most meaningful way, which is not only housing somebody, but inviting somebody into their community. Um, that to me is integrated and sustainable, um, socially sustainable, environmentally sustainable. Um, and, it, and that to me starts to feel like a solution. Not even because they've housed one person, but when I think about the, the, the attitude switch of an entire neighborhood, viewing that person who is on the streets, who now lives two houses down in, in you know, Jane's backyard, the attitude switch that happens when, when that person is in such proximity and when you're standing at the bus stop next to them and going, hey, how's, how's your morning? You know, what's going on? That, to me, feels like systemic solution. Um, and that even gets away from housing that one person. I think the impact of that person being housed is probably greater on the community than it would be on that single individual. But that's part of the beauty of it is I think it, it becomes it becomes a two-way street rather than us, you know, zooming out and, and providing something. Like, that's us trying to give. Um, and the only receiving that we get to have is if we go and visit and meet those people and talk to that, um, you know, that mother or those kids. Um, I've walked out of Georgetown Village, you know, with, like, punch to the gut kind of feeling where I go home and I just put my you know, my, my face in my hands and I think, how is this happening? And those are the moments that I feel like we all need a little bit more of in order to, to seriously solve the problem. Because um, otherwise, I think it's it's easy to, to look out on it as just a really wicked problem that's kind of too complex to wrap our heads around. Um, and it is. I think it really, it, it is that complex. But if we can get in, if we can get involved at the scale of the individual, and facing homelessness is, in in my eyes, the best champion for that kind of work. That's a nonprofit here in Seattle. Um, they they just do an unbelievable job of shedding light on the the face behind the number of homelessness, um, and it it'll punch you in the gut. It's it's they're they're heartbreaking stories, and it's. I, I work in this world and I still oscillate between feeling very heady about it, approaching it as a problem to solve. I get I get into that space and then I get ripped out of it sometimes when I meet some of these individuals. And for me, like that's a process that we have to just relearn over and over and over again and we'll all be better. And like I think if, if we can all get involved to that degree, we might actually solve this thing. My last question maybe is is a bit of a reflection on your role as designers, which is, how has this changed the way that you approach design and the question of making places? Uh, wow, I think it has benefited and challenged me professionally. Um, I think looking at a tiny house study is a really important effort in terms of visualization and understanding scale. So you then begin to realize how, many, how much time it has taken, how big of a site it has taken, 
how many hands and volunteers and hours it has taken to build this village that can house like 40 little tiny houses. And then you remember that the homelessness problem is in the thousands in just this city. And then you think about it actually and you realize, well, we don't actually have the land to use this model to solve homelessness. And so then you sort of visualizes homelessness in a different way. I think for me professionally, I've seen the portraits and I've heard the stories and interviews of people experiencing homelessness and that hits me in one way, but then seeing this sort of raw data of here's a house and this is how much space it takes. And so this model doesn't solve the problem, I think is a different sort of visualization that's been really important to me professionally. And I think also to other professionals to realize the space of homelessness, if that makes sense. Um, and then I also think there were some great rewards um, in terms of how I approach design. It's a very fast process. So you go from a two-dimensional plan to it being built and realized really quickly. And um, just that idea of seeing how your thoughts manifest into a physical built form, I think is something we're all drawn to as designers and architects and planners that we're making a real space for real people. And that that quicker feedback loop, I think, is important. And going from design, imagination, to actually talking to a resident, seeing that full spectrum of a design process, I think, is really influential. Um, and I'd also say that it's there's a freedom, I think, in this temporary housing to try something that you don't get to do in other sort of project typologies and where you feel very committed here, you can try something. And if it doesn't work, the house is mobile. You can just shift it a little bit. And so then you're real time problem solving in a different way and having allowing yourself to be flexible and to change something and to experiment and to do something that hasn't been done before, I think is an important thing for designers to remember how to do. You know, you're free to do that in studio, and then you get <laughs> to the profession, and you're like, oh, it has to be right from the very first sketch, and we are cemented into this, and we built it, and and the, this model allows you to say, no, you know, maybe we can study it, and we can take some things from this, and some things from that, and make a puzzle that is sort of more complete and considerate. And lastly, I think, for me, it was really important to say, landscape architecture matters in this because you hear tiny house village and you immediately just picture the little houses thinking like where does the landscape come into this and even some people would be like well we don't have a budget for trees and that i understand that that we are so much more than that as a profession and this reminded me of that whether it's i think landscape architecture prepares you to deal with the unexpected you're dealing with natural systems and so you realize that you can't control everything and you have to sort of create boundaries for a space to live and breathe and morph and under understanding that is really important in a tiny house village because you have to allow for that sort of thing and so i think we have a professional expertise that supports that fluidity between what's built and expectations and be actually how people actually behave in space and also just making a community sometimes you happen upon it and it's sort of natural and organic but sometimes you have to start designing community and that is an actual spatial exercise and that's something that i've seen in this tiny house village that you can start to build a framework that then 
become somebody's community. Yeah. Um, well, it, it was um, my my lead into all of this kind of started when I was still in Texas. Uh, I, I went to the University of Texas, and while I was doing an internship at a really big firm there called Page, I received an email, and um, there's a nonprofit in town that was going to build a tiny house village for homeless individuals in Austin. So anyway, I got some friends together uh, at the firm, and we formed a team, submitted a design. It was one of the winning entries, so it got built a number of times. And for me, it was the first tangible step into what you talk about so often in design school, which is using this incredible, profound influence that design has and serving people who really need it. And, and I don't know where exactly we picked that up, but it seems like people come out of school with a very social agenda of uh, you realize the importance of this. And it could just be that by nature, people with means and privilege oftentimes just by nature have access to all these really powerful qualities that come with good design. And I, I don't think that we're necessarily taught to all turn our attention to those who don't. But it's kind of a natural process that I feel like I've met architects from around the world, especially young architects, and I could say naive architects, myself included, who's who's just so excited to use this incredible, um, you know, influential thing. This this what what become we're like rats in a cage. But you know the the. The, the cities that we walk within totally dictate how we live our lives, and we're, we're totally oblivious to it. And once designers realize that, they think, oh my gosh, we can do something beautiful and profound for people. And, uh, and then you start working, and it just seems like just by nature of, uh, and, and I think oftentimes architects' hands, hands are tied. It's not, it's not, it doesn't stop with them. But I think as we go through our careers, we, we move further and further away from the people who we thought we would serve when we were in architecture school. Um, and so how this has you know, changed my trajectory or how it's influenced my career, I, I feel like it's been a lot of baby steps for me of like moving towards something that feels uh, a little bit more, I think for my journey in particular, I really crave the... Uh, to, to be jerked out of a, a what is a very much of a brain problem solving environment and and actually be impacted by the individuals. I think for me that gap is a is a chasm in my heart and in my mind, and I'm constantly trying to stitch those things back together. And I think that might just be my journey, but I've been taking steps that feel like it gets me closer to those things that allows me to feel. Um, it's such a two-way road. Like, I don't even want to say it allows me to feel like I'm helping someone else. It helps me. It's like my nourishment that I'm addicted to right now. And this work is like healing parts of me that otherwise kind of go unaddressed. Um, and that gets back to so many things in life. But it's, 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 it's kind of a more holistic... For me, it's, it's, it taps into a, a way that I want to live. Not just the work that I want to do, but a way that I want to function as a human in this world. Um, I can't seem to get away from the work. And I remember having this moment where I was just like, damn, is homelessness, like, am I on this track? Am I going to get off this track? Is something else going to become my thing? But I couldn't get away from it. And there's something there, that the opportunity with the people there, the realness, the authenticity of, of the individuals, um, I think they wear on the outside what a lot of us wear on the inside. Um, and there's just so much opportunity to, like, yeah, to be moved in a way that is transformative. 
that I just can't seem to get very far away from. So I don't know. I don't. I don't really know where where career is headed. Um, I just know this is something that I have to keep doing right now. Priscilla Barron, thank you so much for sharing the vulnerability and the successes that you've had and where you've had some lessons learned. I think it was truly enlightening. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for listening. This podcast is part of the Homeland Project. We invite you to learn more about the project at homelandlab.com. Our work would not be possible without the support of MIGSVR and the Landscape Architecture Foundation's Innovation and Leadership Fellowship. To learn more about the tremendous work of LAF, please visit their website at lafoundation.org. Finally, we want to thank our friends at Yves for the use of their music. You can learn more about the band and find out about their debut album at thesoundofyves.com.